Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode seven of the Humans of Crypto podcast. This one is a special one. I am joined by the one and only Tay El Rujla. We dive into his incredible, epic journey uh, from living in the Netherlands to mining to celebrating Bitcoin Pizza Day in an asylum center here in the Netherlands, all the way to his current efforts today with Flus Finance and Supersend Market by supporting the Afghani and Lebanese diaspora to spend their cryptocurrencies to help their family on the ground to get the basic necessities. This is truly an honor to be able to have this conversation with him, to share his journey and his mission with you all. Um, this, this episode really was very special to record. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Oh my God, Tay, thank you so much for joining me for the Humans of Crypto podcast. Welcome. It's an absolute honor to have you here. Really, uh, you're, I can't wait to share your story uh, with our listeners. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I remember our, our first encounter uh, when I was, uh, you know, diving into all your history. There's so much to tell. But when I think back at the first time I saw you, on that stage, we were at a permissionless meetup, uh, or was it blockchain talks? I can't remember wh which one it yeah. was, but it was like a meetup and you were talking about Taiken at the time, like you've done so True. much since. True. That was yeah, like I think, the... I think we met at blockchain talks, our, I think so. our, first, uh, our yeah. first meetup in Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah, a yeah. Pretty, pretty cool event. Uh, at that time, I think blockchain yeah, it is still a buzzword, but it was a big buzzword. Yeah. Um, now we have seen big innovations in this space and uh, things have dramatically changed at a very accelerated pace. So, uh, yeah, humans in crypto is usually uh, underestimated. Uh, but uh, at the end of every talk, like especially in my uh, TEDx talks, I always say that this, this technology is about humans and uh, technology by itself doesn't do anything. It's humans that do. So uh, I'm happy to be here again. So, tell, so, yeah, I mean, you're so right about the idea of the what do we do with the tech and it's about people. And just looking at your journey. Like, can we just like roll back a little bit? Because I'm not sure everybody who's going to listen is going to be like, oh, yeah, it's, hey, I know who that is. Yeah. Like, you have the most atypical story and we've we've we have pretty exceptional people in crypto. But I think your your journey, you know, marks people more than Thank anything. You. Um, do, do you mind sharing how definitely, you, definitely. your story? I mean, the journey started in late 2011, beginning 2012. Uh, it was my first interactions with uh, Bitcoin. And uh, at the end of 2012, I decided to be a miner. Yeah. So um, I ordered my first batch of uh, miners from Butterfly Labs. Really? Nothing came. <laughs> Nothing came. I paid like top dollars for it. And uh, I was working in the Netherlands. We, in, in the Dutch terms, it's called a Kenneth immigrant or a knowledge worker. So I was hired from Dubai to come to the Netherlands, to The Hague, and train a healthcare company on a uh, CRM software called Siebel that okay. I used in Dubai in my 
with my previous employer, which was DU, DU, uh, DU Telecoms, the first uh, telecom provider in the new section of Dubai. They were using Siebel as a CRM system, and this company in The Hague hired me to train their uh, employees who had exposure to uh, the Middle Eastern communities here and the North African communities. So they wanted an Arabic speaker. Mm. And uh, this is when uh, I came in touch with uh, Bitcoin. And from, you know, I was paid, to be honest, a good salary. So the money I saved, I bought miners with it. I wasn't <laughs> interested at all in financial inclusion. I wasn't interested mm. at all in the things that I'm doing today. Uh, mainly my interest was I'm seeing something that I can sell for a 20-30% premium and I can make good money out of it. I didn't understand what is money. I didn't know how to define money, how to explain money. Um, Butterfly Labs was a big flop for me. I lost the money that I put there. As I said, the machines didn't come. Uh, the year late, like a few months later, I heard about the Bitmain in China that they were releasing new type of miners, much more efficient, much more cheaper. And from the feedback I was hearing on the Bitcoin forums that, uh, yes, it's working. Mm. So uh, I ordered my first batch and uh, I had a small student uh, room in, uh, in The Hague. So it was a one-bedroom apartment that usually they rent out for students. Uh, why I'm mentioning this? Because the uh, people who rent these type of uh, units, they know that it comes all-inclusive with water, electricity, internet. You just pay one price. I and, see. Uh, I'm starting miners. to understand. <laughs> <laughs> miners, nice. Yeah, miners, they need electricity. And uh, mm. I said, you know, okay, it's a good deal. Uh -huh. uh, I was using uh, the miners in the winter as a source of heat. So uh, <laughs> yes. 2013, I remember it was the first time that I see snow and the first time that I touch snow. And mm. I was so pissed that on my balcony, there was no snow at all. The room was so like warm that the snow was not able to stick to the ground. <laughs> the noise was horrible. Oh, my God. Uh, the heat was unbearable, although we were in February, like midwinter. And uh, one of the neighbors uh, actually complained to the police and said, hey, really? there is a guy who has a <laughs> beard, who is a little bit uh, tanned, and uh, he oh, keeps shit. on going in and out, and we mm -hmm. hear a lot of noise. So we think he's growing weed in his apartment. Yeah, and there's no snow on his balcony. Exactly. There's no snow. So uh, the police, like, they directly took action. And uh, there was a raid on my house, to be honest. This was uh, towards beginning of March uh, 2013. Uh, the police raided my house. And what? they came. Yeah, they, the SWAT actually came in the house. And what? They were looking, yeah, they were looking for ammunition. They were looking for weapons. They were looking for drugs. <laughs> And you're what like, well, oh. was, was uh, miners. <laughs> so uh, I do remember that they nailed a paper written by hand on the door and they put a lock on the door as well. And they said, please come to the police station to take your lock, to take the key <gasps> to, to your apartment. So, uh, you know, I come from the Middle East. So mm. going to the police is something like really scary. 
and they gave me coffee they apologized and they said please give us your bank account because we need to pay you for the damage that we did for the door and it was a really lovely conversation um, okay. that time i moved the miners from uh, my home into a warehouse in ippenberg in Nodorp. Um there i like grew this business and i said you know what we're getting a lot of requests from people who want to mine uh, yeah. but they don't know how so uh, i bought a case an empty case an empty pc case i removed the pcb boards from the uh, s1 miners at that time and i put them in this case put some lights some fans a switch on off button and i started something called turbominer.com this was my first first entrepreneurial business i've never thought of myself to be an entrepreneur and uh, because i lived in dubai i know a lot of people there so i started calling guys there and said hey i'm selling plug and play miners you can just put them in the electricity you switch them on and they make bitcoins for you that come into your wallet directly so you don't have to trust me with your bitcoins or with your money or nothing um how did I sell them? I used to put the miners on a table, write the name of the client, take some pictures with the date, put my driving license next to it, and send them. When they <laughs> when the clients see these things, then they call me. I think there are some pictures on Bitcoin Talk, uh, the BitcoinTalk.org, the first Bitcoin forum, because there I was advertising for it. And around that time bitcoin if i'm not mistaken was between fluctuating between like 300 to 600 dollars it breached 1000 dollars 1100 1200 the first time and i said yes you know like i'm really smart i bought something at 20 dollars and i'm selling it at 1200 and i never ever even thought in my wildest dreams that we're going to see bitcoin at 10k so right. You know, not even to imagine now, it it, it almost hit $70,000. Uh, it was good. And, uh, you know, as I said, I'm just making profits not on the uh, price of Bitcoin going up. My profits were basically on the price of the equipment I was selling. And in, towards the end of 2013, I get a letter from my previous employer in the Netherlands who said, you know what, they, uh, we are facing somehow a crisis in the healthcare industry. The subsidies that the government used to give to the healthcare sector has been reduced and we cannot anymore employ uh, skilled labor immigrants in our company and pay these high salaries. So apologies, we have to cancel your work contract. Now, this was in exactly January 2nd, 2014. And it, I didn't really care a lot because, yeah, I had Bitcoins, I had my miners, <laughs> I had my business. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to just do my uh, residency on my own business. And here where I knew, you know, like you have to open a BV, you have to uh, have a certain amount of money to open it. I think it was at that time 18,000 euros in capital. And, uh, you know, my passport and here where my journey started, my passport, I'm Syrian. I carry the Syrian nationality. My passport was expiring in around uh, one year. So 
it was not impossible even to open a business or to renew my residency. And as time is passing by, we reached March uh, 2014. And I realized, hey, my, uh, you know, the time that they gave me to fix out my issue has already passed. Mm -hmm. So three months has passed from January to March 2014. And now, technically, I'm illegal in the country, although my residency card is valid till the end of 2014. So this gave me somehow some comfort to know that my residency is valid till the end of 2014. I still have around nine months to fix my issues, to fix my residency issues. And I've been in the Netherlands since 2011. So almost five years. I said, yes, I'm going to get my Dutch citizenship and my worries will be over. Yeah. 2014 was the climax of the Syrian civil war. You started seeing on television, you know, long lines of Syrians at uh, asylum centers. They're coming to ask for asylum. The war in Syria was escalating. The borders were closing. Lebanon closed its borders. Dubai closed its borders. And they started enforcing visa requirements on Syrians. And, you know, it is almost impossible to get a visa due to the war, of course. So I talked to my lawyer and she said, well, Tay, you live in the Netherlands, you live in The Hague, you have a dog, you have a car, you have a scooter, you go to cheer for Ado Den Haag, our local football club in The Hague, every Sunday. Uh, you have a social security number, you have insurance, you have a bank account, you have a Dutch number. You have an address, you live in a place, you live in a house. I don't have any fines. I don't have any issues with the with the law. So all these checks, they will help you get asylum really quickly. But because it is the climax of the Syrian civil war and we have around 50,000 Syrians coming to the Netherlands, well, it might take you three months. Mm. And here where it was a little bit, you know, my pride kicked in. I'm living in my own apartment. I'm having the best life that I can have. Clubbing in Rotterdam every Saturday. <laughs> going Sunday, having a beer on the Ado Den Haag Stadium. Okay, we, are, we were losing every time. But still, <laughs> the vibe was good. By the way, I think this is the first time that in this year, Ado Den Haag, they won five games after each other. So congrats for them. I'm one of their biggest fans. And this, you know, this gave me the feeling that, okay, it, it is looking like my life is coming to an end because I don't want to go to the camp. I, the idea of going to a refugee camp is an impossible thing. It's a no-no uh, because the imagine, my imagination was playing. There will be a tent. I have to live with other people. I have to live in open space and, uh, yeah, uncertainty. So what's going to happen? I said, you know what? I'm going to go to, uh, I'm, I'm going back to Syria. I'm going mm. back to Syria. Although I've never, ever lived in Syria, I have absolutely no clue uh, how does Syria look from the inside. 
Um, I lived in Lebanon most of my time. I grew up in Lebanon. I studied in Lebanon, in Beirut. I graduated from the university in Beirut. So um, all my life, I'm associated with Lebanon, with Dubai, although I carry the Syrian nationality. And, you know, my parents will definitely not accept that. And somehow it was a suicide mission because uh, I'm seeing, you know, uh, ISIS and I'm seeing war and I'm seeing all these things on TV. And I said, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to fight ISIS and I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to just end my life there. September, this is this was March, like March, this idea started to play. I'm never going to apply for asylum. This, you know, the pride, the, 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 the emotions that we were playing that, no, this is not going to happen. March, April, May, June, July, August, I'm struggling in accepting the fact that I have to go to Terapel to the northern part of Holland to take just take a train from the Hague Central Station to uh, Zwolle. And from Zwolle, you take a bus to Emmen. And from Emmen, you take another bus to uh, Ter Appel. So it was relatively, if I look at it now, <laughs> it's, a, it's a trip, you know, it's a vacation. It is, it's, you're not going to apply for asylum compared to what people in Syria had to go through to come to the Netherlands. I didn't know this. Some some people had to walk from Damascus to Netherlands. Walk. So if you're missing a tram after 12 o'clock going home and you look at your Google Maps and you say, what the fuck? I have to walk 40 minutes back home. Yeah. Some people are walking from Damascus to Netherlands, literally walking. And they use Google Maps for that. You know, they use their smartphones for that. And we're going to come to the importance of that point later. So uh, I decided to, in September, to ditch my plans going to Syria and uh, go apply for asylum. Now, what triggered that thing? And by the way, this story, I, I wrote a book and I talked about it in the book. I talked about the emotional struggle that I had going and leaving everything behind, leaving my identity. My, We always somehow like struggle to explain the Dutch identity. And Queen Maxima herself said, actually, the Dutch identity doesn't exist. You, There is nothing as a Dutch identity. But... For me, the Dutch identity was going to watch football on Sunday, having a beer, uh, cycling to work, driving my car on a weekend, having a dog at home, uh, going to the coffee shop, smoking a joint, uh, eating cup salon, uh, <laughs> you know, all these uh, swearing in, in uh, diseases. And yeah. this is this was the, the, the yeah. Dutch thing for me, you know? Yeah. yeah. So uh, September, September 11 to be... Exact. I was sitting at home watching TV and I saw a big migrant boat, boat full of migrants, 500 migrants on board. It sinked in the Mediterranean and there were only two survivors. Something snapped in my head and said, they, these people are risking all what they have. They are risking their life. They are literally, they don't have any other option 
to stay in Syria. What are you doing? You're sitting on your couch in The Hague, in a warm place, in the safest place on earth. And sorry for the word, you're bitching about going to the refugee camp. You just flushed your toilet with drinking water. And those guys, they, you know, they sank in the Mediterranean. And the reporter was saying that the Mediterranean Sea today is the largest graveyard on earth. From the numbers of migrants that have drowned, it became a graveyard. And many families have lost their children, lost their wives, lost their husbands, lost their brothers, their sisters, trying to take 1% of what I'm having in this country. So this was the switch. I called my landlord and I said, sorry, uh, Mr. Landlord, I have to go apply for asylum. But please keep the apartment for me. Keep my things in the apartment. I'll be back in three months because that's what my lawyer told me. But when did she tell me that? She told me that in March. Now, from March till September, the few thousand refugees were that came to the Netherlands, they were multiplied by 10. And I told my neighbor, please take care of my dog, water my plants. Uh, I switched off the gas, switched off the water, said, I'll be back in three months. I'll see you later, guys. I took the train to Terapel and I stood at the uh, uh, police station. I said, I want to apply for asylum. So he looked at my residency card and he said, hey, this is still valid till December 2014. What are you doing here? I said, yes, this is my story. I was working. I lost my job. I can't go back to Syria. I can't go to Dubai. I can't go to Lebanon. He said, yeah, but why don't you go to Kuwait? You are born in Kuwait. I said, yeah, I cannot even go to Kuwait because I don't have the Kuwaiti nationality. I'm Syrian. Look at my passport. And my passport is expiring in less than six months. There is no embassy to renew it. All the Syrian embassies were closed. So I'm here. I want to apply for asylum. They said, okay, give us your phone. Give us uh, your bag. I had a small backpack, just a few clothes inside it, toothbrush, toothpaste, deodorant, and uh, my phone charger. Stand on the wall, pictures, fingerprints. They took my footprints even, and they gave me a garbage bag, a blue big garbage bag. Inside it was a blanket, shaving kit, soap, a pillow, white sheets. And they said, well, sorry, we don't have places tonight for you. You're going to sleep. Uh, in the detention center. So detention center is a room. I think it's like uh, five meter by two meters. And there's nothing in it, not even a, a chair. Just you sit on the ground. And I stayed there my first night. I slept on the floor the first night. And then the next day they opened the door and said, well, uh, we have a place for you inside. Please walk with us. At that night, I was thinking like, what the fuck, man? I should have went back to Syria. And, you know, I was reviewing my thoughts saying is this the best idea that i have done what i have done to my life what will i tell my parents now that i'm in a refugee camp you know again you have to understand the arab pride the arab culture of being proud of who we are and what we achieve and uh, sharing this with the family was was difficult was was nearly impossible you know my dad would get a heart attack if i tell him i'm in a refugee camp because he boosts about his son. My son is in the Netherlands. 
my son is doing this, my son is doing that. So uh, I enter in the refugee camp. Now remember, I speak Dutch, I speak English. My accent, Arabic accent, is not Syrian, it's Lebanese. And in the civil war in Syria, there were Lebanese militias participating in the war against the people, with the regime, with the Russians, with the Iranians. So hearing a Lebanese accent in a place full of Syrians, it's like, yeah, how can I explain it? Like, it's, it's really, fr- it, fur- it, it makes people furious. If you go back in time and you're in World War II and a German enters in a room full of Jewish people, they would eat him. So this is the same scenario I'm in. I'm coming in a room where eight people, eight Syrian males are inside, double beds, four double beds. Everyone had his headset on and uh, looking at his smartphone, dark room. And I enter inside. Assalamu alaikum. Nobody replies. Everyone has his headset on. So I took the bed up and I slept. Next day in the morning, we're lining up to take our uh, breakfast. And they hear my Lebanese accent. And like the whole next in the refugee camp was turning. I was really scared. The breakfast was two slices of bread. Uh, if you go to any benzene station in the Netherlands, they have something called the flam tosties. It's a, uh, you know, two slices of bread with some ham in it and some cheese. It was a flam tosti, but without the ham. And uh, we got as well a small uh, transparent plastic bag with two white plastic cups in it, the one bag of tea, uh, two sticks of sugar, and one stick of Nescafe with a plastic spoon. And you have to eat your breakfast in the food court. And then you're allowed to go back to your room. You cannot take food into your room because there is a chance of rats coming in or, you know, for for hygiene purposes. You just take your plastic bag and you go back in your room. There is a small water kettle where you can warm up water. And uh, yeah, you can drink a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. Lunch was two boiled eggs with a cup of soup. And dinner was half cooked rice with some vegetables. So after two nights of being hungry, I said, man, this food is amazing. You know, I should I should have tried this food when I was in the hay. <laughs> then after like two, three weeks, I'm saying, man, okay, I ate, I think I ate a lot of cup salon in my life. So this is a good diet. I I'm looking at the mirror. Hey, I'm losing weight. I'm really happy. Then I think a month and a half passed by and I said, no way, I'm going to put this food in my mouth anymore. So I went to the uh, management of the camp. We call the camp the COA. I went to the management to the COA and I told them, listen, we have here in in this place around, I think at that time we were around 400 men and uh, many of them can cook. So can we cook breakfast or lunch ourselves in the kitchen? And they said, uh, no, because you are not now, you are an asylum seeker. You're not a refugee yet. An asylum seeker, the difference is an asylum seeker, his identity is not yet verified and processed. So you are in a process of verification where you go through 
three interrogations from the immigration services with the police, with the secret service, with the the whole chain of security in the Netherlands. They have to verify who you are before they give you a permission to stay in the Netherlands. And I said, okay, and what does this mean? They said, this means if something happens to you, we cannot really take care of you. You're not insured. And I said, huh? How? Like, they said, yeah, you just came now. So this is the food that you have. Please, you have to eat it. So I said, okay. And uh, there was no internet in the in the camp. So we had to use our 4G or 3G at that time as well. So I started, you know, I, I, my bank, my bank account was closed. Uh, my IDs are with the government now, my Syrian passport, my Dutch residency, uh, even my Ovi chip card, I gave it back. So literally all what I had with me was my smartphone, my charger, internet connection from a SIM card that I had at, in the, in the previous times, I had a different number even than what I have now. I had a number that ended in five sevens. So my number was 0654-77777. So uh, I used, what I used to do is, this was what we call an abonnement. So you have unlimited internet on it. And I started telling the Syrians in my room, hey, if you give me two pieces of sugar, I will open my uh, mobile hotspot for you and we can share the internet. This was my first trade in the camp. Sugar for internet. Because I love my tea like really sweet. You know, okay. Arabs and Syrians, they, they drink, they don't drink uh, sugar with the tea. They put tea in the sugar, you know. So uh, it was a good uh, trade. And uh, yeah, time passed. Weeks, months. We're in that same situation, uncertainty. Every time we ask, okay, when we will be processed? I say, I have to wait. It's too busy. The asylum procedure is on paper. So you do the interview. They give you uh, your interview on paper. And many of those interviews that happened, happened with translators that were non-Syrians. So Moroccans, Iraqis, sometimes even Somalians. We do share the same Arabic language, but different dialects. So everyone was afraid of lawyers. They didn't trust them. They didn't trust the government. They didn't trust the IND. They didn't trust the translators. So they used to come to me and ask, hey, please, can you read this document for me and tell me what I said, if it's written the same? I do remember there is a guy, now he's... Uh, he has his Dutch nationality. He has his own business. He's really successful in the Netherlands. Uh, he had a Saudi residency on his passport. So he used to work and live in Saudi Arabia before. And then he went to Syria. And then from Syria, he came here. And in the uh, interview, they mentioned that his Saudi visa is still valid. So when I asked him, hey, here in the report, it says your Saudi visa, Saudi visa is still valid. Is that true? He said, no, it's uh, expired a long time ago. So we had to go back and correct it. That 
that incident changed his course of asylum or else he would have been in a different category with with more time and more waiting time and more uncertainty. This is the first time that I felt I'm a little bit loved. I'm a little bit appreciated and a little bit respected. Just a little bit. But when did this whole thing blew up and change? Uh, it was May, May 20, I think May 2015. We were like really fed up from, from the food. And we moved from Terapel into Zvola. And Zvola was a camp uh, that they uh, like set up really quick. It was a, the place was a showroom they used to do dog shows in it. So they bring dogs and they make uh, nice uh, shows for them. The place there, it was a showroom for such events. They were kind enough to not do a show in 2015 and turn it into an asylum camp in order to host refugees. At If you watch back in time, 2015, at Nos the Dutch television, you will see me, the first guy entering in the camp. They brought cameras to show how the camp is really brand new from inside, new mattresses, new beds, new kitchen, uh, pool table, air hockey, new showers, new bathrooms, splinter new. I was the first guy to set foot in this camp. And we were all doing like this, hiding our faces with the jackets. And the mayor come, uh, some people from the government came. And now I'm with a new group. And again, I have to tell my story. My name is Tay. I'm born in Kuwait. I lived in Lebanon. I worked in Dubai. I came to the Netherlands. I lost my job. And now I'm applying for asylum. This was a record that I was playing every single time the newcomers came in the camp. And every day we had newcomers. So the news spread in the camp that, hey, this guy speaks Dutch. He speaks English. He speaks a Lebanese Arabic accent. So there is two possibilities. He's either sent by Hezbollah and by oh Bashar al-Assad to spy on us or... The Dutch king is sending spies in the camp to spy on the Syrians. There was no other option, you know, mm. because nobody would believe such a story. And in Zwolle, there was no uh, food court like we had in Terapel. So there was a table with bags of food on it. The people of Zwolle were even so kind, they started donating fruits and vegetables so in the bag, you might find an orange, a banana, an apple. Yeah, I don't eat apples. So if I had an apple, I would trade it for a banana. But again, the same scenario. You know, the food is, we're really thankful that they're offering food. But, you know, we're used to, you know, the how Lebanese have breakfast, how Syrians have breakfast. Olives, labne, cheese, tea, milk, magdous. <laughs> The yeah. olives in three different uh, sorts, yeah. the, the hot bread, four or five people on a table. Yeah, this was not there in the camp. So as I'm sitting there, it was the Bitcoin pizza day. <laughs> and I was remembering, hey, you know, like they ordered pizza and paid with Bitcoin 
and did a transaction between United Kingdom and United States. Can't I order pizza in the Netherlands with my bitcoins on the phone that I mined between 2012, 2013, oh. and 2014? Oh I said, yes, I can. <gasps> no, you yeah. didn't. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I looked for the only pizza I can find was New yeah. York pizza. No. And I ordered it to the camp. Wow. Now, in Zvola, there were as well some uh, people who didn't want refugees. So they were making some troubles with the camp management. So they had to put a black, uh, like a, a, a plastic black curtain on the whole sides of the camp. There were a large fence. It's what the police usually uses when they want to seal a location. So they sealed the whole location in the camp with these black drapes. And there was a guy at the door holding the pizza. And I hear shouting with the security. And I hear shouting in Dutch. And the guy, the security guy is telling me, you're not allowed to enter in the camp. And this, the bezorger, was the delivery guy was telling yeah. him, yeah, someone ordered pizza from inside. He told him it's impossible. These are refugees inside. No one can order a pizza. You know, there's no internet even oh at that location. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I came to him. I said, no, I did uh, this order, this pizza, and I paid by Bitcoin. I said, ah, what is Bitcoin? I said, yeah, it's new type of money, digital money. And, and the pizza came in the camp. The wow. smell of the pepperoni. We were 380 refugees in one hall. Open space, double beds. So one bed down, one bed up. And there were beds next to each other in rows. The picture is always the picture that you see on my TEDx talks from the refugee yeah. camp. This, we took it there and it was exactly the same. I'm holding the pizza. I'm moving inside. The smell is spreading. Like I had a big circle around me and everybody like was, how did you do this? I said, yeah, I used the uh, Bitcoin. I said, huh? What is Bitcoin? Yeah, Bitcoin is a wallet. You download it. You can uh, use it as money. You can order uh, things. You can order pizza. You can say, hey, can we send money to Syria? I said, yeah, of course you can. Hey, can we uh, work and get paid by Bitcoin? I said, yes, of course we can. And the questions came on coming and coming and coming until we started making uh, circles in the in the camp every, uh, I think it was every Thursday evening, uh, we sit and we talk about Bitcoin. Oh Some God. of the refugees were going outside the camp. Like they go into, the camp was in the center of Zvole. They yeah. go into the supermarket, they take plastic bags and they come back to the camp. And you know, in the Netherlands, when you take a plastic bag, you have to pay for it. So this 50 cent, they didn't have, they didn't pay it even. And it started making problems with the uh, with the surroundings of the camp. And this is where we added to the Bitcoin what I call the integration 101. So I started telling them, yeah, in the Netherlands, you have to pay for your plastic bag. You have to pay for going to the bathroom. You cannot take just ketchup like this from McDonald's, like what we do in Dubai and in Lebanon <laughs> and in Syria. And... <laughs> Take it uh, with you, know, you have to pay for everything. And then I realized, hey, like people now are trusting me more. 
I'm making their life easier, not only with digital money, but as well living in the Netherlands. Yeah. So I started telling my stories living in the Netherlands, what I used to do, the freedom, the safety, uh, that, you know, you can ride a bicycle, you can, uh, you have to, you know, limit yourself to some speed limits in certain streets, you, you know, you pay high fines for it. And this event, the pizza event with Bitcoin turned me into the king of refugee camp. So... Next day in the morning, I wake up, I have my food ready, like the youngsters, the 19s, the 20s, and the 21s, and those young guys, they come and they say, Muallim, it's like, uh, you know, boss, uh, hey, uh, we, uh, we know that you like uh, bananas, so hey, we have some bananas for you, we got this fresh bread before, uh, before no. it was distributed, and, you know, can you, uh, can we get another Bitcoin lesson today? Well, we loved it. Mm. I said, yes, yeah, we can. So some of those people were good in, uh, like they were teachers back in Syria. So they were good in translation. And this is when I applied to be a global moderator at Bitcoin.com. And I applied there and I told the guys, listen, we are in touch now with reporters who want to report about the Syrian uh, crisis. They want to report about cryptocurrencies and they want to translate articles. We can get paid in Bitcoin for that. So I had like a group of translators. I get the, uh, the we call Dutch the Opdracht. I get the, the work and then I give it to the people. They translate it on paper. I type it back on my phone and I send it back. And the University of Nicosia started their uh, MOOC program, yep. the Introduction to Digital Currencies. I registered for it. And this is when I met Andreas Antonopoulos uh, online in the courses. And I was fascinated by his vision on money and the history of money and what is money. So this is when I had the change in mentality. Looking around me, it is not only me now without an identity. It is 400 people in a camp with no identity, with no single proof of their academic certificates, land titles, birth certificates, driving licenses. And there you can use Bitcoin as a proof of existence by timestamping the signatures of these documents on the Bitcoin blockchain, and you can use it as a way to transfer money that doesn't ask you for your first name, your last name, your country of honor, origin, or any other document. So the news started spreading among refugee camps that, hey, there is some sort of genius there who, uh, who, who has is working with this new technology, uh, Petcoin, Batcoin, uh by coin so they yeah. for us as as syrians our interaction with the english language is very minimal because it's not taught in schools and if it's taught it's only for the private privileged uh, schools so as a public school you don't have this strong english uh art, like you're not articulate you can't read and write english so it was tay was something special there 
One day we get a uh, visit to the camp from a, a Dutch uh, Somalian girl. And she said, well, we have tickets to a startup weekend in Utrecht. And uh, we're looking for talent to join. Whatever you want to do, uh, you can just uh, come. Here are the tickets. Now, I thought, hey, we can go there. We can eat. We can drink. Uh, we can meet people and maybe find a job so that I can get out of the camp, get a work contract, get paid. And I never in my wildest dreams thought that I can participate in such an event. Startup Weekend is a Techstars event. And I went with uh, two refugees there. And I called one of the guys that was on the Bitcoin.com forum. His name was Abdullah. And Abdullah was a student uh, in the United States with the Saudi origin. And I told him, like, there's an event in, uh, in Utrecht, Techstars. So uh, can you come? He said, yes, I'm in Saudi Arabia now. I will talk to my university and see if they would allow me to come and participate. Most of the Bitcoin people that, you know, from Roger Ver to, uh, let me see, David Mondres, uh, even like Abdullah, Mustafa Fargali, all these now big names in the Middle East, around the world, they were they started from those Bitcoin forums. They started from the Facebook forums. I was one of the first guys to set up the Bitcoin community in Lebanon, the Bitcoin community in Egypt. And we were talking and meeting on forums most of the time. There was no Coinbase. There was no, uh, you know, Gemini. There was... I think CEX.io, which was at that time doing uh, uh, subscriptions for uh, miners. This was the most hot topic at that time, cloud mining, Gee, lots yeah. of scams. Yeah. And <laughs> the job was yeah, just to like, make, make sure that people don't fall in scams in the forums mm. and moderating, moderating most of the time. So my responsibility was the Arabic section in Bitcoin.com. I was promoted to be a global moderator. And I was so happy, you know, just uh, I, I am feeling feeling an accomplishment. So Abdullah came to, uh, to, to the Netherlands. We participated in Startup Weekend in Utrecht with an idea to use Bitcoin as a proof of existence for mm-hmm. academic certificates. Since in the Middle East, there is a lot of fraud. Uh, in the Middle East, there is a lot of fraud when it comes to academic certificates. We won. We won that event. We won the first place. I met uh, Oscar Knappers from uh, Rockstar, the founder of Rockstar. One of the gifts that we got was to go and pitch in Rockstar our startup. At that time, it was Tycoon. And uh, we won as well in uh, Rockstar. We joined the accelerator. We raised $1.5 million for that. And Abdullah told me, you know, I have to go back to Saudi because I need to study. I need to finish my studies. And Abdullah started Rain.bh, which is today the number one Middle East crypto exchange, uh, the first regulated crypto exchange in the Middle East. And Rain.bh today is backed by Coinbase Ventures, is backed by the biggest names in the industry, and in 2021, they did their first 
billion dollar in sale in crypto. So this was how, uh, you know, this was how small the world was, the Bitcoin world, the crypto world. And this was the, from a pizza order, it, it flipped my life uh, upside down. I mean, I'm just remembering uh, now and getting like emotional and goosebumps of because, course, I mean... uh, yeah, it's uh, looking at where we are today and maybe the viewers or the listeners are asking, okay, why they, are you saying all these details? Mm. I'm saying all these details because in 2021, the dots were connected and I realized why did I have to pass through this journey? Why did I meet Abdullah? Why did I meet the uh, Dutch Somalian girl, Masra? Why did I have to spend two years in the refugee camp? Why did I came into Bitcoin? And all these wise, 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 wise that I struggled to answer from 2014 till 2020. It the, the answer came in 2021 and the answer came when Lebanon actually went through a very difficult uh, situation with the big explosion in August, in August 2020. Uh, in August 2020, the big explosion happened in Beirut in the port and uh, many lives were lost, many businesses were lost and many houses were lost. Unfortunately, one of our uh, houses was, I don't want to say fully destroyed, it was heavily damaged. And I had my Bitcoin private keys written on paper. I didn't have copies for all of them. Some of them I was able to retrieve, some were, were lost. And it was that day that I realized, hey, you know, am I unlucky or am I unlucky? Even when I like take the the best security measures to back up my wallet and write my keys on a piece of paper and I live by the code, not your keys, not your coins. And I've lost a lot of Bitcoin in my journey simply because there was no one to teach us that if you don't save your wallet dot that so there was not even yet a private key that you can write in words your private key was a folder in your laptop called wallet dot that that you have to save and some of them were saved on usbs i lost some of them on laptops that i lost so i did the best i could to live by the code not your keys not your coins and i saved my uh, keys on paper. I, some of them I made copies. Some of them I didn't. And this was the the result. But this was not the learning curve that I had. You know, Lebanon went before 2020 in a huge inflation ride, capital controls. Uh, people lost their life savings. They thought they were smart by not trusting the Lebanese lira and putting their money in dollars in bank accounts. Well, guess what? The central bank said the lira and the dollar 
therefore us now, therefore the government, they have to continue paying subsidies on the basic necessity items in the country, like fuel, like food, like wheat. So my uncle who worked in Qatar for around 30 years, he came back to Lebanon and he put his life savings in the bank in dollar value. And now he has to live on $50 a day, sorry, $50 a week, withdrawing money from an ATM. Uh, The Lebanese currency went from being a peg of 1,500 Lebanese lira to a dollar until 25,000 Lebanese lira to a dollar. So with Western Union not functioning, with MoneyGram not functioning, with banks not functioning, and you have an explosion that, that was felt in Cyprus 200 kilometers away, some people say it was a mini nuclear explosion. It wiped half of the city. It changed the dem- demographics of the city. It changed the, the landscape of the city. And NGOs were rushing to help. The international community was rushing to help, but they can't send money there. The only thing that worked was Bitcoin. The only thing that was able to transact value to Lebanon was Bitcoin. And this one, it hit me that we can't go back in Lebanon to what we used to do in traditional finance. There must be a new way of building the financial sector in Lebanon. And crypto is at the heart of it. Our community that was around, I think, shy of 7,500 people turned into thousands in a matter of weeks because now everyone has burned their hands using and trusting the traditional local financial system of Lebanon and they're looking for another alternative. So this one, uh, I think my like again the big why was right in front of my face and saying i have to start something and then i started flus uh, flus finance but the timing of starting flus finance was not the best because uh, we were in the not the first lockdown in the second uh, lockdown so between uh, uh, let's say July and uh, December 2020. No work. There is uh, no jobs. There is no public appearances. There is no workshops. There is no possibility of doing what I was doing before. And all what I was thinking of is flus and how can I fundraise for it now? You know, how can I go to an event and stand and pitch in front of 100 investors and try to close a deal for it? You know, I believe in it. I believe in the product. I believe in the product market fit. I believe in the target market. It's tested. We have some traction. Uh, We're doing transactions. We're using what we have in our hands, our network, in order to build this platform but yeah how can you now talk about it how can you promote it there's no blockchain events there's no bitcoin wednesdays uh, 
<laughs> I can't go there and and do what I'm doing. So I had to find a job. I had to work. My neighbor is a uh, construction worker, and he told me, hey, in construction, we always need cleaners. And we call them in Dutch, bow opruimers, construction cleaners. They start the shift from five in the morning till three in the afternoon. And I said, yes, that's perfect, because now I can wake up early. I can go earn my money. I can close my bills. I can put food on the table. And in the afternoon, I will work on flus. And this is what I've done. So from uh, September 2020 until April 2021, I was every day, five in the morning, in Schiphol, in the airport. Opposite to Schiphol, there was a big bum construction site. And I was the cleaner there. It was winter, cold dark i said no problem my headsets were on i'm listening to bitcoin uh, podcasts <laughs> and yeah there were no humans in crypto at that time <laughs> I to you. but i had my bitcoin podcast i'm just being updated on uh what's happening in the market you know the new innovations that are coming out the DeFi space that's flourishing and uh, i get my money end of the week so I said, hey, it's perfect. I don't have to wait till end of the month to get paid. And nobody gives a fuck what I'm doing. So I can, between between the cleaning times, I can text the people I'm working with, continue doing my crypto to cash, cash to crypto transactions in Lebanon. And in the afternoon, I can, uh, you know, continue working on flus. So... One day, the owner of the construction of the cleaning company that hired me, uh, he saw on my LinkedIn a post that I've written. So the cleaner of this company, the company is called Bink, the cleaner of Bink in The Hague uh, broke her foot. So they called me and said, hey, you live in The Hague. Our head office is in The Hague. Can you come and clean the offices today? And I said, yeah, sure I can. I said, yeah, we will pay you for that work. So I went there and I think it was two or three times that I cleaned there. And one time, one of the employees went to lunch and he left his screen open. He left his laptop open unattended. I was thinking to myself, hey, if it was someone else, maybe he would take a USB with him. He will plug it in the laptop. He can spread the virus. He can take the whole system as a hostage and ask for a Bitcoin ransom. You know, it can happen. Yeah. So I went back home and I wrote a post on LinkedIn and still there. And I said, I'm now I'm working as a cleaner. I'm not ashamed of it. And here are the lessons that I learned. One is greet the cleaner when you see him because you make him feel better. And if he feels better, he will clean better. And if he cleans better, you have a better environment to work in. It's nice to work in a clean clean space. Second lesson is when you leave for lunch or when you leave your desk unattended, <laughs> lock your screen. Yeah. The CEO of the company, he saw this post. And <laughs> next day, he, he came and told me, hey, you work in uh, crypto, right? I said, yes. He said, 
Where's your Lambo? I said, I don't have a Lambo. I have my bicycle down. And this is my story. Again, I had to tell my story from the time I was born in Kuwait until this day. And he told me, can you teach me how to uh, buy crypto? I said, uh, yes. We went on a session. I taught him. He loved it. And we became good friends. 24 and 2021 in April, when the markets started to pick up, I was lucky enough to have bought in a DCA strategy from September till April. Every money I'm earning on cleaning, I'm putting back in crypto. And I said to the uh, CEO of the company, I really appreciate the work that I have here. I love you guys. And we will stay close friends forever. I thank you for the opportunity, but I have now to go and, you know, build flus. A few months later, the U.S. Army withdraws from Afghanistan. And one of the guys that was in my circles in the refugee camps, he called me and said, Tay, Western Union is not working in Afghanistan. MoneyGram stopped working in Afghanistan. Our currency is devaluating at an alarming rate. We are in a similar situation as Lebanon. I have been following what you were doing in Lebanon. Can we do the same in Afghanistan? I said, of course we can. But why would you need to do this? He said, well, we need to at least feed our families. And I have my trusted network on the ground. And I used to work with USAID, with UNHCR, and he's a software developer. So he knows basically the local area he is in, the money transmitters, the shops, the supermarkets, and they are all willing to learn and to go on this learning curve and use crypto. I said, let's do this. So we started talking to the Afghan diaspora in the Netherlands and telling them, hey, if you are worried about your families back there, and keep in mind that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and all most of the Dutch-based NGOs, they had to leave and leave the people that they used to work with back mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. I think the minister resigned due to this uh, incident. So we started talking to the diaspora and telling them, now you can purchase crypto locally from the Netherlands. You can send it over to Afghanistan and we will help you change it into local currency and we will distribute this local currency to your families. And they said, you know, Tay, I would love to give money to my family, but can I give them food instead? I said, of course you can. So we started going to the supermarkets, purchasing the food, putting it in plastic bags and knocking on their families' doors and giving food to them. This evolved into a supermarket. And I was inspired by Picnic and Daniel, their CTO. There is somehow a personal relation with Daniel. Uh, I've met, met him in person a couple of times. We had breakfast, very lovely guy. And it was always in my head, you know, how Picnic started uh, in, I think it was, uh, it's not Amstelveen, it's 
similar similar city with a similar name. It's close to Zeist in uh, in uh, Utrecht, and uh, this is where they they uh, started, and they started like a very very small pilot. And look today, they are a multi billion dollar industry. So that story always stayed in my head, and I thought, hey, can we do a picnic in Afghanistan? And can we do a supermarket in Afghanistan? But this needs a superman. You know, this needs somehow to carry money from one place to another. And you need to fly. You need to break barriers. You need to that's, be strong. That's you why you to... called it Superman. Exactly. This is how the name Superstan came. It's Superman, Afghanistan, supermarket. Wow. I didn't and know that. That's a good Yeah, story. we have today... Uh, an online supermarket in Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, the purpose of this marketplace is to serve as a place for the Afghan diaspora to buy crypto in their local areas, in Europe, in US, in Canada, in Australia, in London, wherever they are, and send it over to Superstan, and we take care of the rest. We take care of the conversions, we take care of purchasing the products, putting them in Superstan bags, and delivering it to people. The latest product that we launched was the Maha packages. They are packages dedicated for women, where you have sanitary pads, you have creams, you have shampoo, you have soap, and you have a thick blanket. Today, in Kabul, for example, it's minus five degrees, and we're happy to have shipped more than 100 blankets today to families in need. We've reached more than 100 families. We've, we've distributed more than a 1,000 items in a span of almost six weeks. And it would not be possible without using crypto. Impossible. There is no PayPal. They deny services. Western Union, they deny services. MoneyGram, they deny services. The whole world turned their back on Afghanistan the moment there was trouble. But there is crypto working fine, working like in the best way. Remember in 2012 and 2013, everyone used to talk about breaking barriers, financial inclusion. It didn't mean anything to me. It didn't resonate with me until I lived that situation. So, again, sorry for this, like, long story. No, don't apologize. To, Never I apologize. Want to, I want everyone to feel how the dots were connected. Everything I said was for a reason today to see how the dots connect. And thanks to crypto, we're not, we don't say we're changing the world. No, we are doing it. It's going to take me a while to absorb everything and you said. Listen, this is community <laughs> effort. This is the community. This is not the president of a country saying, we're going to use Bitcoin as a legal tender. No. no. This is a pure bottom-up approach. People by themselves organizing as a decentralized organization. They have a common goal. They have a focus. And they have an incentive. I'm not an angel. I'm not a nonprofit guy. I do things for money and for business. And there is 
money in this way of work. But the money is being attached to an impact by default. We didn't aim for feeding families in Afghanistan. We didn't aim in bringing basic necessity items for women so that they can keep their hygiene, they can keep their pride, they can keep doing what they do best. We didn't aim for that. What we aimed is, you have crypto here, you have cash there. How can we make this bridge? And how can we make sure that it is not used by bad people? It's not being used by terrorists. It's not being used for uh, money laundering. It's not being used by Taliban. They might be using crypto. I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. You know, my goal was you are in Europe. So you have a European passport. You have a bank account. You have a credit card. You have verifications on who you are. It's not my job to verify you. It's the job of satos.eu. It's the job of Coinmerse. It's the job of Betonic. It's the job of all these licensed crypto exchanges around the world. They can buy crypto from there. They move it into their own wallets, from their wallets. Then comes my job to verify my people on the ground there. And how do we do that? Well, as I said, the guy is a previous USAID employee. So as an USAID employee, you have an ID number. We have a copy of that. We have a copy of his passport. We have a copy of his previous company that was working with UNHCR, USAID, and many other companies. And we did like an interview video call with him. And the people who are ordering, again, they're verified from the, from the source. So my first mile and my last mile is clean. All what I need now is to bridge them together. And this is where crypto comes to play a perfect role in being a good system of escrow, a good system of transferring value and a good store of value. Because now we can tell those people, if you have a little bit of extra money, keep it in, you know, maybe Bitcoin, keep it in Ethereum. Better than your currency becoming worthless. Because in Afghanistan, the central bank money is confiscated by the international community. So what can be, you know, better reason to wake up every day than this type of work? <laughs> day, day, day. What a story. And it's not even a fictional one. <laughs> it's real. Eleanor, if we had to hire Steven Spielberg or, you know, any of those famous directors and ask them, can you write such a story? It's not possible. And this is, again, it's not, I'm telling it's, you. It's not believable. I think people yeah, will be lost in the plot exactly, and be like, wait, what? Exactly. It's not believable. And you can't put such a plot together. But today, the dots connected. Seven years later, from 2014 till today, it's the first time that I really feel happy. I really feel oh. alive. I really feel, okay, my, my purpose and my vision and the things that I used to talk about in TED Talks and in all the uh, meetups and in all the closed and open meetings, now they're coming, you know, now they're falling in place. It's happening. I can see it. I can feel it. 
You know, you can feel the energy of those people miles away sending their good vibes because we made it possible for someone to have a blanket, for someone to have milk, to have diapers, to have oil, to cook. And, you know, mothers are calling me saying, you know, thank you. God bless you. We're praying for you. And I, I'm not, I wasn't looking for that. It, it happened. It took time, but it happened. You, you, you did, you know, you, you put in some sweat and some tears into this, but yes. it's, yes. I, <laughs> I just, I'm still trying to imagine like the Dice Result Delivery Bitcoin guy, you know, that scene. And now today it's, yes. it's, you're there, one, you know, you're one yeah. action, you know, one action. And, uh, Dice Resort was accepting Bitcoin from a long time ago. From yeah. They, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, they stopped they, for a while and then they, they went back to it. Yeah. They still do. Yeah. They use BitPay. Yeah. Dice Resort is a is yeah. BitPay uh, gateway. Yeah. yeah. Jesus. Hey, like. It's just I still have, I, I love your story. Phone, I'm I love looking your story. at my old phone here on the table. Yeah, my old phone still have those transactions. You know, and, and they will pay... always be there. They'll always be on the blockchain. Exactly. It's not, it's not going away. <laughs> it's a reminder for me not to pay pizza with Bitcoin uh, uh, anymore, but because the prices, like every pizza, I paid for one pizza, I think thirty euros. Like we paid, I had one receipt for 30 euros and today it's worth 1,500 euros. Yeah, but that's not but, think that way. That's not, you know, exactly. that's not what I'm supposed to think. It's, it was worth exactly. 30. Bitcoin exactly. at that moment was 30. And that's today, why I'm telling you, Eleanor, it. Yeah. it took seven years yeah. to overcome that feeling. Spending. But Spending not, that Bitcoin. But it's not just you. I think the whole ecosystem is a bit... On the fence, like I remember when I started in crypto in 2017, met people like you and, and people that had been in crypto earlier. And there was, um, some of them were uncomfortable because they had spent crypto and then they were very bitter about that one night, which now was worth a couple thousands instead of a couple hundreds or something, or, yeah. you know, much, much more. And I was like, no, but thank you. Like if you hadn't spent it, then this would not even exist today. And the narrative of spending crypto got killed. I was actually just talking about it in an interview the other day, and I was saying, yeah, the Netherlands were early adopters. Like we had Utrecht, no, Arnhem, sorry, Arnhem Bitcoin Arnhem, City, yeah. like with 300 merchants accepting crypto. And the idea of spending crypto died since, like whatever you want to call is it due to the, the block size debate, other things, you know, store of value, medium of exchange, all those things at play. Yeah. Um, and we've, we've talked several times since, and you know that I'm a... I'm an advocate for using cryptocurrency. So if you had to come full circle, it's fine. I think it's it's about keeping that alive. Crypto is not just a to the moon limbo thing. I can't, I don't, 100%. I don't believe in that. I don't want it to be reduced to that. Even though for anybody just stepping into crypto and not knowing about the story, that's what they see. 99% of the content out there is I made this much amount, of money, this is how much you missed, you missed that opportunity, you know, all that FOMO and FUD. And it's only through projects, I think, like Superstan and yes. others that it just gives me a little bit of hope <laughs> that this space is not just, yes. you know, just money driven, 
you know, and huddle to, no, no, we're not huddling. We're using it. It's making a difference today. And let's not forget that it's, it's so important. And, and I'm so happy that you, okay. I'm not happy you had to live all those things, but I'm happy that you're there today and that your journey can inspire. I'm really happy. I, I always say I'm blessed. I'm blessed to go through this experience and go through this journey. Because if that pizza order would not have been done, the chain reaction after it may not have happened. No, absolutely not. No bananas on your bed. No Bitcoin.com translation articles. Can you imagine the adoption you've done in all those years? Those guys, you might not, those guys, some of them you're connected with, some you're not. But the impact you had. The thought of how many talks I did about crypto Mm. and I tell people, Raise your hands if you don't have Bitcoin. And then they come to me and I just give them $5, $2, $1. And some even transactions like I give a $5, I pay a $3 transaction fee. I say, it's okay. I Thanks. want them to feel it. This was, this was the, the message from Andreas Antonopoulos all the time. The best way to understand Bitcoin is to use it. Just to- don't explain hashing and cryptography you know the the amounts of hours and months and days and years i've spent reading about cryptography mm. reading about Keynesian economy yeah reading about game theory reading yeah. about all these buzzwords that are were used in explaining bitcoin and i'm i graduated with a degree in business economics right you know? right able to explain to define money in a few words, it took me four years. Yeah, it takes a while. I, you know? My first couple of years in crypto, there was no way I was teaching anything. I had to also absorb all of these things. Yeah. And same as you, I also went yeah. through whatever union. They never taught us about money either. Like, I can't yeah. even believe how close I was to the subject, but always oh, so far. You know what yes. I mean? Like, it's like, yes. how could I have gone through this level of education yes. and not understand the system I'm 100%. in every day 100%. and what I'm using? 100%. What do you think of Andreas today? I have so much admiration and I think his talks, it, for anybody listening and who doesn't know who Andreas Antonopoulos, go check him out. His early talks are spectacular and he inspired yes. so many people um, and, and is so eloquent and a great, you know, yeah. he speaks very well, great educator. Yeah. Do you feel though that the narrative of spending crypto also got a bit lost with Andreas? Do you think something of less on less about that how yeah. what happened what yeah. happened in your opinion why is spending crypto now so new or is it you know i feel like I your project it's, is so it's different a, no, i think it's a price related uh, issue it's an issue where they're seeing this technology growing growing mm-hmm. in value growing in terms of economical numbers dollar value a user adoption And now, when you're living in a world that is driven by being the best, getting the best, living the best, suddenly you want to have what you, you know, you have something that is constantly giving you more and more value. You start with one Bitcoin at $9,000 or even March 2020, the start of the pandemic. Bitcoin, $4,200. Okay, yeah. 
let's say you bought one a month later it's growing a year later it's forty thousand you're not gonna spend it you're gonna maybe spend a little bit of it because you have the hope that this will be a million and then you're gonna spend it mm. there is always a higher satisfaction it's like exactly when you smoke weed when you take your first puff you're like you sleep you know you, you can't stand up you're directly knocked out and then your body builds tolerance you want more mm. you want more mm. you want, as more as you smoke as less you get high yeah always the first high is the most spectacular one the first cigarette the first glass of wine the first glass of whiskey the first ecstasy the first mdma this is always the best experience and and bitcoin it's the same you're getting your first crypto you're seeing how it's growing more coins more exchanges more dollar value for it more adoption banks talking about it your your dream whatever your dream is you think you can achieve it by just holding this thing now when will it change it will change when you burn yourself it's like a five years old that you tell him or you tell her maria don't touch the oven it's hot what will maria do she will come and stick her hand to the oven <laughs> and she will cry for days because her hand is burned and she's five years old we are like this five-year-old maria you can you will tell those people you know bitcoin is not just your store of value you have to spend it you can use it to pay stuff they won't listen when they will <laughs> listen they will listen once their bank get, gets busted mm. once their uh, money is confiscated once their single currency among 28 countries fails or the reserve world reserve currencies suddenly starts to crumble down and more and more and more of it is printed and higher debt ceilings and then they will realize hey i've been holding on to something and i didn't spend it maybe perhaps now is the time to spend it because if i had spent it a few years ago i would have bought more stuff than <laughs> what i have now people always forget that the crypto is related to the fiat is yeah. related to the dollar value is related yeah. to the afghan is related to the Lebanese lira it's not out of this world so better use it now and transact well, yeah Connect. transact use and and replace i'm not saying exactly. buy everything spend all your crypto never look no. back i'm saying spend and replace this has to be a circular economy if it, it just sits on wallets we are just not changing anything and it's not as well to add on the circular economy by the time you reach the level that you want to transact some other people were transacting with it years before you Mm. They have more experience. They have more technology. You know, they have yeah. more uh, resiliency. They have more use cases for problems that 
are in certain cryptos yep. and you won't find solutions for them because you're not using it. Yep. You're, yep. It's like your car. You buy the best Mercedes out there and you put it in a garage for 20 years, for 50 years. You try to turn it on later, it won't turn. While around you, people are flying with cars. <laughs> I like the analogy. Except the moment you buy a car, it depreciates, right? percent. <laughs> whereas with crypto, there's a chance that yeah. it could appreciate. So, yeah. but it's, I think it's fascinating. For, you've seen it. You've seen a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you. It's so interesting that you started with mining, not caring about all the whatever we're talking about. Nothing, like all this. Nothing at all. Nothing. I'm a second. I'm a second life gamer, Eleanor. I used to play ah, Second Life, and inside the game, there yep. were. Uh, gamers asking for Bitcoin, you know, wow. and uh, they used Linden dollars uh, <laughs> and there was a platform called uh, Verwox, Verwox, V-I-R-Wox, W-O-X. This was the first crypto exchange in the world, I think, before Empty Gox even. So Verwox, the Linden dollars were sold there and People were asking for Bitcoin because they can change Bitcoin to Linden dollars quickly. And the premium was 40%. Whoa. <laughs> 40% premium. So I came to the market and I said, hey, I want to create, I want to know the source of this Bitcoin. This, the source of this thing that is sold at a premium for 40%. If I'm able to get to the source of it, then they will earn a 40% premium. So by the time that I got to the source, the premiums were going less and less and less. Mm. When I entered the second life Bitcoin uh, trade with Linden dollars, the premiums were around $20. And this is when I came to know about mining because this is how you create Bitcoin. So I, Any I read the white paper and I said, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is uh, this is just someone who like on a typewriter he wrote something. I I googled Satoshi Nakamoto. Who the fuck is Satoshi? I mean, there's no pictures for him. There's no LinkedIn for him. He's not on Facebook. He's not on Twitter. So uh, yeah, I said just forget this whole thing. Now you're earning twenty percent on your hundred dollar investment. Just continue doing this, and uh, yeah, that's how. Would you go That's back into the? Would you go back into sort of the mining game at all? Uh, to be honest, not. Uh, I mean, uh, this is how I met uh, Alejandro del, uh, del Toro oh, as well. Oh wow! In, uh, he was living in Delft uh, at that that time. Wow! So we used to sit together in uh, Den Haag in the Hague and have like morning Aww. coffees, talk about mining, and he used to help me with with uh, mining a little bit, some configurations, some making it more efficient. Uh, yeah. It was even at that time, Alejandro was working on his first product, I think was Block Trail, if I'm not mistaken, the name of the startup. He was doing something similar to uh, blockchain.info where you uh, see the transactions and uh, mm. uh, the, the public uh, registry. So uh, this is when I, I uh, like, I knew how time consuming is mining how mm. costly it is uh, 
and the industry is simply changed from from that time you know it, it in the two years that i spent in the camp from 2014 till end of 2016 yeah bitmain came to open offices in amsterdam they acquired the startup of alejandro and yeah. alejandro was the vp of uh, sales at uh, bitmain at that time that, no sorry was vp was of business a, development yeah it was uh, for btc.com yeah. which yeah, was BTC. my first which yeah. was my first crypto company, right? Yeah. So I, yeah. And it's so like this. It was such a small world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, this was. He's, uh, yeah. he's still in the he's still in the mining industry, I yes. believe. Yes, yes. I mean, still... Alejandro did a. I think the world will make a statue for him in years from now because he'd love that. He'd love on, that. <laughs> on taproot. Yeah, on Taproot, he he's the guy to be the engine behind the Taproot, and yeah. because of Alejandro. We have today Taproot successful, and Taproot is bringing the best, you know, vision that we could think of for for Bitcoin: smart contracts, more privacy, cheaper transactions. So, uh, thank you, Alejandro, for your work. I'll, I'll make sure to send him this uh, this link. <laughs> <laughs> Love to catch up with him. But, Tay, what what? is next for superstan what are you looking well, at how next, can we help uh, you what's sure. yeah what's... next for uh, superstan is uh, lebanon uh, yeah. we are in the process of opening superstan in lebanon superstan was a pilot for what we believe in that crypto can be not only a store of value It's a good example of store of value in Lebanon, in Afghanistan, in Venezuela, in El Salvador, in countries, in Zimbabwe, in countries where their local money is weak, it's non-existent. But we cannot tell people just buy Bitcoin or buy whatever coin you want from the 11,000 coins that exist in the market and just sit on it, you know? People need food. People need to work. They need to earn money. They mm. don't need to take a boat, risk their lives, go to other countries looking for better opportunities, whether it's economic refugees or war refugees. This shouldn't happen in the age of Bitcoin. This shouldn't happen in the age when money is immutable, borderless, open, neutral, and decentralized. This shouldn't happen in an age where I can take my smartphone and Google how to walk from Damascus to the Netherlands and I can't send a payment from Damascus to the Netherlands. The way, why? Because money is a way to communicate value. Today, the internet is a good medium of communication. So we can use it to transact. We can use it to send value from one country to another. Just today, we heard that consensus has barred Iranian students from taking their courses, which I think What? is a big shame. Yes, today, consensus, they shame have... On, shame on consensus. God damn yes, it. I, yes. What? They, uh, they, they are uh, barring What, their be, Iranian because they, students. They shouldn't learn about solidity in Iran? Are you, what are you talking yeah, about? <laughs> I, uh, I, to be honest, uh, it was really a, a sad news to hear from people who are advocating for the future of finance, people uh. who are advocating for an open world. They're stopping the people who need it the most 
from taking it. That's so ridiculous. We believe. What a we? I wonder who at consensus took that decision. Who yeah. are they trying to please? Exactly. Which VC doesn't? Exactly. You know what I mean? Like exactly. what the hell? And which regulator they're trying to to please? Uh, to be honest, and Superstand for us was a pilot, was a use case mm-hmm. for Fluspay. Uh, we want people in Lebanon, people in Herat in Afghanistan, who have like Herat. 4 million people in population. Lebanon, 4 million people. Yeah. <laughs> so you have a country the size of a, like, a, a, a state. Yeah. And we want for this state and this country to use crypto as a way of payment. So if you have a shop, put your QR code on the window, let the diaspora pay for the products directly, let the mm-hmm. diaspora pay for the electricity pay for your internet, pay for your landline, pay for your bills. Instead of using Western Union to send this $300 back to your family so that your family can go pay for these services, no, why don't we pay it immediately with crypto? We have stable coins. We have coins that preserve the value. They do not fluctuate. So you don't have to be afraid from that. This was the idea of Fluspay. But we realized as well, that if I give you as a merchant crypto, what are you able to do with it? You have to convert it back into your local money so that you can put more shampoo on your shelf. You can pay the electricity for your refrigerator where you store your meat and your drinks so that people can come and buy fresh products. This is where Fluspay is not just doing payment processing, but as well convergence. In addition to the uh, Fluspay, on Superstand, when you check out, you have the option to pay with your wallet. It's not active yet, but my vision for crypto wallets will always be non-custodial. You shouldn't trust a bank with your money in Lebanon, and you will not trust a bank with your money in Lebanon, and you will not (laughs) trust an exchange again. It's the same experience. So non-custodial services in certain areas and certain scenarios, in certain countries, states, they are needed. The factor of backing up your wallet on a piece of paper, Bitcoin is a trillion dollar industry and you're asking people, back up your key on a piece of paper. Yeah, what if an explosion happens and wipes the paper out oh this will not happen this is an extreme scenario yeah hello it happened in lebanon <laughs> yeah and it well... happened in 2020 so <laughs> don't tell me it's an extreme scenario lebanon is an extreme scenario and it happens so we we believe biometrics can play a role in backing up your keys and this is where the flu wallet and the flu pay come together in mm. a community driven uh, initiative and it powers uh, Superstand. Do I, do I still get my private keys and I have to give my biometrics? Yes, yes. you have so your it's, private it's keys. it's both. It's both. Your private and keys Because are like with, with um, I use Edge. Do you yeah. know that wallet? Yes. And it's like non-custodian, multi-asset, everything. And, and it's, they only take your username and password. So no email, no yeah. KYC. And you do have biometrics um, and, your, and your private keys. 
So is is that kind of the same model for Flus? Yes, it is the same model in Flus. It is more with a uh, user experience from uh, our communities. Yeah, it makes sense. You Arabic. have to develop. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's product for yeah. yeah products for the right exactly. Community. We don't yeah, have yeah. Uh, like uh, something to read in the wallet. It's all mm. pictures. It's all just nice. things that you click with your finger. The wallet mm-hmm. is still in development. So my ask from the audience uh, uh, here is if there is talent to help us build this wallet and accelerate nice. the uh, pace of releasing uh, Flus wallet on Android, Android phones, please come uh, talk to us. Uh, yeah. Next to the wallet in Lebanon and Afghanistan, we know a lot of what we, what we call as OTC traders. So mm. these are... The people who can convert your local currency into crypto and crypto to local currency. We want to bring them all in the Flus wallet and use them in the Flus Pay payment processing. So when a shop is accepting crypto as a payment, they don't have to worry about what they can do with the crypto. They can immediately change it into dollars, into physical money. Why physical money? Because banks, unfortunately, are out of function so they cannot put that stable currency into a bank account and use the money in the bank account to replenish the stock in the shop it is only possible today with cash money we have some measures on uh, making sure this money is not used in money laundering and financing terrorism but here again my call to the community is if there are people who worked on KYC standards, who worked on uh, CFT, AML, please come in touch and let's try to make this verification system driven by the peer community and not by the by the government. So yeah, we're looking for talent. Uh, we're looking for uh, human capital, which I think <laughs> is the best uh type of capital in the crypto space and it's missing to be honest there is shortage of it uh but i think with with your uh, network eleanor and from this lovely platform it is about <laughs> humans in crypto and we're looking for humans in crypto I might be able to help just a little bit on that side but yeah. it's are you working open source what open what is source, the... we have the plans of being one of the first DAOs in the Middle East and uh, launching our uh, Flus token for fundraising. Many people ask me, hey, why don't you go to AVC and take money? Well, try to go to AVC and tell them, hey, we are working in Afghanistan. We will tell you, yeah. here's the door. Yeah, you know? yeah. No, we, we talked yeah. about this the other day that it was very difficult uh, for normal VCs to trust any, or they don't like basically. Uh, the fact that you're on the fringes. Yes. Um, and we mentioned maybe the idea of launching Flus, but like in a stable coin, which, would that be more? Would that that be is, I mean, this rough? is all open to uh, the discussion and this is why we need the humans in crypto because we need yeah. to talk about this. Uh, yeah. My Let's personal open, yeah. opinion on it is we have enough stable coins in the market. We don't need another one. But if you can have a place where all these stable coins can exist, they can... Uh, like be exchanged with each other 
we keep mm-hmm. the preference for the user, whatever stablecoin he wants to use, we can accommodate that. Um, and we work with nonprofit uh, sector as well. So mm-hmm. we do process payments for large NGOs in Afghanistan. And yeah, it's going well uh, so far. We're happy with it. But uh, there is some innovations that we can work with that can help the nonprofit sector, mm-hmm. that can help corporates as well in their declaration of taxes and in getting tax returns and tax backs on their donations. Right. You mentioned um, that, so for now you're using like USDT, USDC, mm-hmm. and that, but they all have their downfall, right? USDT, you know, shady. Yeah. <laughs> USDC, yes. centralized, DAI, yeah. very expensive to use right now. Yes. Um, so the, there is, there are stable coins out there, but it's it, it's it's difficult. There they all have 100%. their drawbacks and as well. Launching your own stable coin as well is not that mm. uh, uh, you know easy process. No, uh, and it gets today, messy. The moment yeah, the moment yeah. you're a, a, a crypto project with a token, yeah, it gets co-opted. You know, True. and then it's and then it's like, well, I want to just use the crypto I have. Why do now I have to purchase this? True other crypto 100%, 100%. to to use it so it's it's tricky I, there's no 100%. straightforward uh, that's why we i mean from my perspective as a dao if you're having the incentive to earn revenues on the services that you're providing payment processing mm-hmm. conversions wallet uh, transactions um, and you have the community to vote on which coin you want to add to the wallet uh, where do you want to see uh, flus? How much marketing you want to pay on flus? It shouldn't be taste decision for this to survive, to grow, and to be really powerful, to be really based from the community. Mm-hmm. You need some sort of organization behind it. I love how MakerDAO today yeah. grew into this real decentralized autonomous organization. I had the chance to meet many times with their head of growth, Jennifer Sinhaji, who has Lebanese roots in her family. So uh, we talked about Lebanon. We talked about how MakerDAO, and she's a person that didn't come from the crypto space. She went as well into a very painful learning journey to be today the head of growth at MakerDAO. And Dai is simply an amazing example of how a DAO can really create impact i wish that it's not a wish we're working on that for Mm. flus to create a similar impact in our region so this is now set in stone the only thing that we are looking at now okay the token yeah you just copy. You might just need to copy the model that MakerDAO has, Maker and yeah, Dai, the, the, yeah, the, the, pe- the double token solution, and just then choose a blockchain that has cheap Ooh. transaction fees. Because right Ooh. now, the only thing really hindering Dai is the underlying blockchain. Because goddammit, Ethereum just True. hasn't 100%. figured out the transaction yeah, fee yet. 100%. From yet. <laughs> now, I said, uh, now we're, we're saying uh, what is most used in Lebanon? It's USDT, TRC. Right. That's yeah. everywhere you go. Everyone you talk to, they will I'm tell afraid you. Of, yeah, I'm just yeah, afraid I of USDT. I need USDT, TRC20. That's, that's you, what they say. 
But USDT no. is, I'm afraid it's going to implode. Like, I'm sure that it has a uh, utility today. I mean, I, I share this sentiment with you. Uh, and, and that's going to be a black day for crypto. I mean, the moment that thing implodes, we're like, yeah. <laughs> you yes. know what I mean? Yes. Like, that's yes. going to be, that's yes. going to be, this you know is, how. This is going to have an effect. I saw empty Gox implode. Mm. And Jesus. I had as well coins on empty Gox. And mm. at, this empty Gox was the reason that my business in Dubai crumbled down directly because we were at $1,200 per coin. MTGOX closed down. We went down to $200. We lost yes. 70, 75% value of on, on that, on that day. And I hope, and I wish it won't happen now, but if we see Bitcoin, let's say at $100,000 per piece and USDT falls down, then Bitcoin is back maybe at, $3,000, $5,000. So uh, this is and all it, and, speculations. And, 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 yeah. These are all like <laughs> dreams and scenarios. It's not going to, we cross fingers, not going to happen, but crossing fingers doesn't solve problems. So no. we want to serve Afghanistan, Lebanon, Syria, yeah. Iraq, Egypt, Morocco, Algeria, countries where we're looking at Pakistan, they do not have the resiliency now to suffer one more time. Mm. The people are suffocated. The people are, they say in Dutch, they're sat, they're, they're, it's enough. You know, it's, it's still, it's not even till here. It's still here. They're yeah. underwater. Yeah, it's the real we, Yeah, we can't miss, we can't mess this up anymore. We can't do this. Do you have any, and we, again, I'm, I'm taking from our, our previous meeting, but can you just mention quickly the situation on the ground and of current organization, maybe in Lebanon and Afghanistan and how you're also, let's, you know, you're changing the system, right? Yeah. How do they feel about you coming on the ground, changing stuff, bringing money from abroad? There are other institutions, obviously, in Lebanon that have a different agenda. Um, how will that affect you? Do you think... Will they try stopping well, it? True. I mean, so far, it's uh, the 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 viewers have to understand when you are bringing change into such environments, the first stamp they will put on you is you are a spy. You You're are, used to that, right? You're yeah, already a I mean, spy. I'm um, again. That's why, you know, what I've said everything we said in this session, although it, was, although it was a little bit long, but it comes back to a full circle. Mm. Now, we are not yet labeled as foreign agents or spies, mm. but is there a possibility that this can happen? Yes, if the current players, the big players, on the ground, they feel threatened. As funny as it sounds, those same big players, they're using crypto. Yeah. Because they have been sanctioned from, I think, 10 years ago, and they cannot process transactions. They cannot transact globally. They cannot fund their operations. They cannot talk to their supporters outside without money. And believe it or not, I mean, they're using crypto. Crypto is used by everyone. 
will they label us as foreign agents? I don't think so because in somehow and as ironic as it sounds, we're helping them indirectly by keeping the people happy, by mm. keeping the people calm, by making their business continue as usual. Their monkey business is going as usual simply now because the diversion is different. But here's the differences. In politics, when you want to go to the parliament and be a politician, the previous time you have to pay money for people to vote for you. By keeping the power of money connected to the state for more than 50 years, 60 years in Lebanon, Afghanistan, you always, the people were always the sheep following those bad leaders. Why? Because they kept them with the carrot. Here is your $100. Come and vote for me. Here is your $100. Come and vote for me. Here is your five liters of gasoline. Here is your 50 liters of diesel. Come vote for me. In 2020, in 2019, 2020 and 2021, this changed. Because now, this carrot is rotten. Nobody wants it anymore. It's falling apart. And those sheep, they're learning how to be dependent. They're learning how to make their own money. They're learning how to own their money. And they're connected financially with the rest of the world. Their eyes are open, their ears are open, their minds are open, their hearts are open. And this is what we're betting on the change. The moment that you separate money from the state, positive things can happen. And thanks to crypto, we're able to achieve this goal. It's not going to happen on Sunday. It's not going to happen in 2022. It's not going to happen in 2030. It will take some time yeah. and it might take 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, even 50 years. But it's important when to start. It's not will it happen, if it will happen, when will it happen? Mm. And the when started in 2019 when the banks collapsed. Yeah, no, it's a <laughs> Lebanon, sadly, and other countries in that region have been a a wonderful, horrible example of when fiat collapses, when your central bank is a institutionalized Ponzi scheme, basically, yes. and then and then all your dollars are locked in and are called now lolars, right? Because yes. yes. they're there, but you can't access them. And True. of course, and like you said, going back to previously when we were saying about people spending their crypto, you kind of have to feel that pain of the current, and that's what I. Maybe I'm too hopeful of thinking, well, people might learn before getting too hurt, but I think human nature is we, we really adapt when we when we have yeah. to, when it's a question of survival. And just to, to go back to Lebanon, because that's a country I also know very well. We had the, the civil war and it ended in, in the 1990s. And we had like, this is why we're now calling out to the diaspora, right? Four million people, 16 million abroad for the Lebanese community. Um, do you think... And I have this conversation a lot with, you know, friends from Lebanon and, and, and abroad. 
there's another brain drain happening, right? People are leaving Lebanon. They're like, this is it. I can't stand it. I'm done. And people, and, and, and people, I mean, and it's giving me like, uh, you know, uh, getting also a bit emotional, but thinking like, can these type of initiatives like yours, you know, help a bit, you know, so that people don't want to leave again? Or is it just a cycle of... Savior of the country, and <laughs> no. I know found as yeah, this guy is uh, you know the Jesus of Lebanon. But no, no, no. we're, well. I mean, I hope, I just, I just hope our work gives a zero point zero 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 one improvement, as yeah. small as it can be. Yeah. Uh, talking about Lebanon and talking about how people are, I don't want to say they're suffering, but they're losing hope. I mean, and it's the worst. Thing in life when you lose hope you know? i mean who can but, blame them the situation yeah. is so dire well, how would you feel if you lost i mean you went through crypto so you know the yeah. ups and the downs yeah but no one expects their bank account their fiat bank account True. to get locked lose 90 percent value or more Taylor, like their dollar bank account your, I your, know. Lebanese, your lebanese lira it's fine you know we know country is there is a lot of corruption there is a lot of uh you know theft and the lira, we don't trust it. But yeah. the dollar, no, we yeah. trust the dollar. Yeah. We love the US dollar. Yeah. Everyone has US dollar. Yeah. Who yeah. survived this like people massacre? paid in dollars? People paid yeah, in dollars. People who yeah. saved dollars in their mattresses, in yeah. their pillows. You know how many dollars are in Lebanese houses? According to the mm. central bank, there is an estimate that there is between two to five billion dollars locked in people's mattresses and pillows and walls under the carpet this even this dollar is not safe today and in, in, in its physical paper form it is not safe you know inflation is eating it as well you go to change it into lebanese lira and you go to buy your goods and services from the supermarket it's still expensive yeah so the diaspora today has a big role to play in, I won't say saving Lebanon, just bringing hope back. That's it. It feels like just that seems like a, an impossible task. I was trying to look back at the article I wrote. I can't remember, like, I think it's 40% of the GDP to Lebanon yeah. is the diaspora. <laughs> it's like the a couple only, billions. You know why today there is Lebanon? Why the country is still standing on its feet, people, they always think, okay, 40 banks in Lebanon, 40. Really? Population, 4 million. Okay. 40 banks in the country. They're not functioning. You can't withdraw money. You cannot go to the bank and take your money out. How are people living? And it's not happened yesterday. It's happening since 2019. How are people continuing? How are people going from a new year to a new year? It's the diaspora. They are sending money back. They are sending money back home. Mm, mm, mm. There are transaction fees being paid on Western they're the Union. They're the highest. It's the it's the most the highest money yeah. highest money corridor in the world. Yes. I think is Lebanon. It's like to send one hundred euro to send one hundred dollars to Lebanon costs twenty. Like something insane. Yes, like it's, because you have to pay Western Union in Lebanon, and you have to pay Western Union in the country of origin. So you're paying double the fees and you're lucky 
if Western Union in Lebanon is gonna give you US dollar, he might be giving you Lebanese lira and tell you, oh, sorry, I don't have US dollar. Mm. Go complain. Go complain where? Today, Eleanor, today, the central bank changed the rates of the dollar. Today, Again, the, the central bank, the central bank today announced a new rate for the Lebanese lira. 8,000 Lebanese lira for one dollar. No. Central bank rate. They're trying to catch up to the market. They're trying to catch up to the black At market Christmas, price. Mark my words, humans in crypto. In December, on Christmas, Lebanese lira will be fifty thousand Lebanese lira for one dollar. Well, it's at, I'm looking at it now. It's it's twenty five thousand four hundred fifty. Yeah. I mean, but it's funny that the central bank is still like not. Central bank was giving three thousand nine hundred Lebanese lira for one dollar. Today, before I joined your session, in one hour, a new circular came out. 8,000 Lebanese lira for $1. And you are allowed to withdraw $3,000 per month only. Wow. If you have $10 million, we don't care. You can withdraw $3,000 only. Did you did you see that news? Maybe I'm, I'm I hope it's not fake news that I'm spreading, but uh, one of uh, Lebanon's uh, neighbors is Syria, right? And uh, I, I believe... Uh, the Assad family has like 40 billion in Lebanese banks and it's I mean, stuck. Syria, <laughs> the, 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 the problem with Assad today is that most of his wealthy circles that back him up, they have their money in Lebanese banks. There's, because Lebanon is considered to be the Swiss, I know. The Swiss banking, the Swiss financial system of the Middle East. Not yeah. Dubai, not Saudi Arabia, not Bahrain, yeah. Lebanon. Yeah, Riyad Salami, uh, you know, yeah. had a nice ship for a while there. It, it looked Riyad good. Salami always says the lira is fine, the lira is fine, the lira is fine until 25,000 pound for one dollar. And he still says, yeah, lira is fine. Yeah, he's, so, he's, do you think he's in denial? Like, how, how can he still be I, there? Again, again, Eleanor, it's the, it's the mix. It's a very dangerous mix of politics and power and money together. Mm. Those things, they need to be separated in areas where corruption is high, mm. where theft of public money is high, and there is no accountability. There is, I cannot look and see where is my money spent as a taxpayer. You know, yeah, in Europe, had, you do in Holland, in Holland, you do have corruption. We're not saying corruption is doesn't exist here. It exists, yeah. but it doesn't affect the way the country is built. It doesn't affect communities as it affects it in Lebanon. At least here there is electricity, there is internet, there is roads, there is somehow safety, and safety brings investments. It brings economic prosperity. We don't have it. You know, which company will come open an office in Beirut when an explosion happens and it's felt 200 kilometers away in Cyprus? What do you think is going to happen to Lebanon, really? Like, I'm looking this from is this my, from afar. This is the day, the day story. I think in Lebanon, people will increase their adoption to USDT, to Bitcoin, mm. to Ethereum, mm. to all these cryptos. And slowly, because now of the pandemic as well, 
you're studying online, you're working online, you're transacting online, the communities will change. And there will be a new mentality coming up that is taking a little bit from every other country and forming a new type of Lebanese identity. And this new type of Lebanese identity will not be voting for the same politicians that have destroyed the country for the past 40 years. Mm -hmm. They will be perhaps uh, inspired in a new governance system, in a way to govern themselves as what we know as well in this space as delegated proof of stake. So imagine a delegated proof of stake <laughs> for Lebanon. I doubt. Government system for Lebanon where communities delegate the, the experts in the field to come together and run and govern the country. In the history of Lebanon, it happened. It happened when we got the independence from the French colonization. The communities came together and they picked the best experts in the community to help them get their independence. It happened at that time when there was so much pain from the French colonists. And unfortunately, today, the colonist is one of us. And in order to get rid of them, we need to reorganize. We need to have a type of organization that is not only decentralized and not only autonomous, but it is as well delegated to the experts because this is how we can move Lebanon forward. The experts need to step in. They need to fix the economy. They need to fix the society. They need to fix the education, fix the healthcare, fix the import, fix the export, fix the electricity, <laughs> fix the internet, fix the roads. It's the only way we can... At least, at least that, experts. yeah. yeah. <laughs> At least that DAO will have work for the next 50 years, you know, if they figure it out, if they figure the yeah. good governance, they will have work and a mandate uh, for, yes. for, for generations. Yes. I, hey, there's only one way up, right? I, I just hope Lebanon doesn't 100%. go further down. Just That's the like only thing. in any other startup, in any other business, mm -hmm. the only way that you go up is when you reach the bottom. Once mm -hmm. you touch the bottom... Once you feel it with your hand, once you know, okay, this is the bottom I am in, it cannot go any lower, it cannot go any worse, then the, the next logical thing is to go up. You won't go immediately up, but take it step by step. And that's what we are doing now in Lebanon, step by step with the efforts that we've been working on since 2014. Uh, Randa, Omar, Sharbil, yeah. all those great guys that have, you know, they as well have their own stories and they as well risk their jobs, their risk their lives. What people don't know, Randa was called, Randa is the first person that started to advocate in uh, Lebanon on Bitcoin. She opened the WhatsApp group. We did it together. We're both... Uh, we both started this this thing in Lebanon, but she put more risk than what I did because I was happy back in the Netherlands. I can have a big mouth and I can talk. She's there. She's, she's there on the room. ground and she's yeah. a banker. The yeah. bank told yeah. her, 
and they were about to fire her if she didn't stop working in Bitcoin back in 2014. Mm. The ISF, the Internal Security Forces of Lebanon, called Randa and they 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 brought her to the uh, security offices asking her what she's doing with Bitcoin. People don't know these stories. They think that, you know, it will just flourish there. Bitcoin will just, like, it will grow in Lebanon. It needs humans, ladies and gentlemen. And at that time, they took risks more than they. And their stories need to be heard more than they. Sherbil, the same thing. Omar, the same thing. They all started by taking risk. And today, the reward is there. So this is why we believe there is still hope because there is good humans still in Lebanon. They're still there. They're still fighting. They're still pushing this crypto battle forward. While someone is sitting in the Coinbase office in New York, there are people making sure that, Mr. Coinbase, you're going to have clients because of our work on the ground. You are sitting yeah. in your ivory tower where your soldiers are fighting on the street. And today, consensus bans Iranian yeah, students. Yeah, and what do you hear today? Yeah, we're going to ban <laughs> yeah, Iranian yeah. students. I mean, come on. Yeah, good stuff, guys. Yeah. Good, like, good, big brains, big brains. Yes. Today, I like to ask my guests to show something. Would you like to show an object? Maybe what you're wearing on today with yeah, us. Yeah, definitely. Tell us uh, more. What are you wearing? I'm uh, wearing one of the hoodies from HCPP conference. I was, I am still a big fan of this great conference where the real crypto cloud comes there. The real power of crypto is in, in that house with all the hackers, with all the, you know, innovators, with all the people that really broke barriers and really did amazing stuff in the crypto space. Uh, Amir Taki was is oh, yeah. one of those guys who... Huge guy. If, uh, yeah. Check him out. Amir Taki, yeah. HCPP. Big shout out to Amir Taki. Yeah. Amir Taki uh, is in Lebanon. He really? Is, uh, yes, he is in Lebanon. He's as well Great. on the ground, on the fight. So we salute him. And wow. uh, I was so blessed in 2021 after one year of not seeing a stage, of not being in an event to talk to people, to share what we are doing in Lebanon, in Afghanistan. I was invited uh, this year in 2021 to uh, be one of nice. the main speakers at HCPP. And nice. I had a blast of a time. So uh, I met my co-founder there. Uh, Mark Evanson, who is one of as well the brilliant software developers in Bitcoin from the United States, is based in Vienna now. We're working together on uh, Flus, and uh, that's what I'm. That's what I'm wearing. It's a good T-shirt. I always love their name. It's yeah. such a good name, Institute of yes. Crypto Anarchy. We need to bring, I think, uh, your spirit back. Products where we use cryptocurrency. And the idea that all of this is possible due to a free internet, True. due to the cypherpunk ideals, and we need to fight for that. And I'm happy you mentioned that it wasn't easy to talk about crypto in Lebanon in 2014 or even now today, and that a lot of people are sticking their neck out. 
I always felt that's why my platform is here is because I do this from the luxury and safety of a European government, which will not storm into my house because I'm talking about crypto to yeah. people online, yeah. you know? Um, and I, I think it was Snowden. I mean, Snowden, Snowden says a lot of wonderful things, but uh, about the idea that privacy is not just to be fought for just, oh, I, can, I don't want to misquote him. I don't want to misquote him, but it's the idea that basically people like me can can advocate for privacy because those who really need it, they can't. True. Those who are silenced by default, they can't stick 100%. their neck out and say, oh, I need privacy. No, yeah. it's 100%. people like me that have the luxury of safety, of being in a regulated environment where I have water and fresh air and, hey, electricity. Like I had people yeah. the other day that couldn't join the talk that we had with about Lebanon because they don't have electricity or they have like, yeah. you know, 10 minutes a day or they don't have bandwidth. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, so I have that luxury of being able to just host people yes. like you, Tay, Thank on you. this platform and will continue continue to advocate for, for cryptocurrencies, really, and for Lebanon and, and, and all these countries. And I wish you all the best. Um, I'll make sure to leave all the links below yeah. uh, for people to reach out to you if they want to support, if they want to contribute their time, their knowledge, their software development skills. Um, that's that's what I can offer. And Thank it's you. been an absolute honor, Tay. It's, to uh, the honor is mine. The pleasure is mine as well. And as you said, you know, we're talking in this safe space here. I'm in The Hague, my own office, yeah. and I can have a big mouth and uh, talk about everything. <laughs> yeah. While many in Lebanon and Afghanistan, they can't even, you know, put a TikTok video outside. Or in Egypt, you put a controversial TikTok video, you sent to jail five years, seven years. So the freedom of talking about humans in, in crypto is a blessing by itself. I thank you for the platform. I thank everyone who will watch this to the end. <laughs> and uh, I hope I see you in person. Yeah. And Inshallah. Inshallah. Soon. Big events. <laughs> And we share more good stories, more good Definitely. vibes, and we inspire more people to really use crypto and show others how that the change is coming. Yeah. On those wonderful words, to financial freedom, to censorship resistance, and to peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash. Tay? Amen. Thank you. Until very soon. Mm -hmm.